Well, hey, everybody, so great to see you, whether you're here in the room or joining us online. I'm thrilled to have you along for the ride. And before we get started, I need to take a minute to acknowledge that yesterday was a very good day for college football in the state of Michigan. Am I right? Yes. yes. It was so good. I mean, record-breaking. I made us a slide. Check this out. <clears throat> Michigan won. Okay. Michigan State won. Yeah. Ohio State, okay, they still won, but they struggled which is a good thing. They, apparently they bleed. Then Alabama lost. I mean, what? Clemson lost. And Tennessee lost, okay? And, and so here's all I'm saying. If you're a college football fan, yesterday was a great day. If you're not a college football fan, it's okay because we're moving on. Don't even worry about it. So today, we get to continue a series we've called Fighting for Family. That as I mentioned last week, I'm hoping that will prepare us for what many people call the most wonderful time of the year, but because of complicated or even impossible family dynamics can feel more like the most stressful time of the year, right? And, and so this series is based on the idea that with proper expectations and proper strategy, it's actually possible to fight for and not just fight with your family, like this holiday season. And I know for some of you that sounds too good to be true, and I don't know the specifics of your situation, but I'm telling you, if you're like, I can't believe that, I'm so glad that you're with us today. Okay, so now with our time together, what I want to do is talk about the one thing that absolutely all families have in common, and of course I'm talking about conflict. I mean, I mean, let's be honest, right? We all fight with certain family members from time to time. If they're sitting next to you right now, please don't nudge them. It's awkward, right? But, but it's like family conflict almost seems inevitable. And, and as I'm sure you've noticed, fighting with someone in your family is very different than fighting with someone outside of your family, right? Because, well, if, if you fight in family and you happen to win that fight, it, it really doesn't feel like winning, does it? Like you may momentarily feel good about winning the argument, but right after that emotion fades away, which for me happens in like three and a half seconds, um, you realize that the person with whom you fought and won is still mad at you, even though you won the fight, and somehow they're going to make you pay. And you often have to be around them from time to time because they're in your family, right? I mean, you've maybe never thought about this, but you can fire your friends. You really can. Trade them in for better models or something, right? But you can't fire your family. And that's why when it comes to family, conflict is an incredibly complicated thing. It really isn't like conflict anywhere else in life. And so I was thinking about it this week. And one of the things, that, one of the reasons I'm convinced that uh, family conflict is so particularly challenging is the ways that different family members choose to engage in conflict. And I was happy with lists this week, so I made another list. So check out this one. Um, if you think about it, there are some people in your family that are peacekeepers, right? And th these are great people to fight with because they're so conflict avoidant, they won't argue about anything ever, right? Like they won't even push back on anything ever because their only goal is to keep the peace whatever the cost. And again, you probably have a couple of them in your extended family, and they're your favorite ones to fight with. I know, right? Then there are the sulkers, right? And these are the people who, after a fight, will say that they're fine, but they don't really look fine, right? They mope, or they frown, or they scowl, or they, like, become the ice princess or the ice prince. And some of you just thought of Elsa because you have kids, and I know how that goes, right? But basically, these are the people that let you know that even though it's over, 
it's not over. And they're going to punish you through an intentional display of negative emotions. Okay? So that's the sulkers. Next up are the stuffers. Uh, these are the people who, no matter what they're feeling, will tell you that they're fine, but they're not fine. In fact, if they stuff it long enough, and you may have seen this once or twice, they'll eventually explode like a volcano, right? Which can be dangerous to them and to you. So you got to be careful with the stuffers. Uh, then there are the litigators, a group near and dear to my heart. Um, and these people are hands down the best arguers. I mean, they, they always win because in their minds, they're never wrong. <laughs> and, and see, if you're a litigator, and, I, and I'm a recovering litigator, sometimes Sarah would tell you I have a lot more recovering to do. <laughs> but uh, if you're a litigator, it's no surprise that, that nobody ever wants to argue with us because at least in our minds, there's no way we could ever lose an argument. And, and we're so logical in the way we pursue it, we can convince even ourselves of just about anything. But, but again, as we've said, when it comes to family, winning isn't exactly winning. And so litigators, we face a real challenge when it comes to conflict with the people closest to us. In fact, we can make people feel like their concerns are not really being heard. So that's the litigators. And finally, there are the screamers. And so if you're a screamer, you already know it, right? Everyone reminds you of it. But these are the people who respond to conflict by getting louder. They, like, turn the volume up to 11 to control the situation. Hashtag Spinal Tap reference. Right. But fun fact I learned from a friend this week who's a counselor. If your family of origin was full of screamers and you sort of learned that pattern of family conflict, and this is fascinating, odds are you probably didn't marry a screamer. And you likely remember the first argument you had with your non-screamer spouse. Like, you started yelling at them, and they looked back at you and said something like, demon come out, right? I mean, they didn't come from a family in which people raised their voices, so they just didn't get it. And, and they refused to yell back, which frustrated you and made you get louder. And then they thought something was wrong with you. And you thought to yourself, but, but don't we need to get it out if we're going to deal with it? And isn't this how it's done? And they just looked back at you and said, no, <laughs> which you found confusing and maybe offensive. But anyway, I'm telling you, the styles of conflict engagement really do make family incredibly complicated. Uh, but, but, and here's some good news. Um, in spite of that reality, I'm convinced that it is possible to learn how to better manage conflict with family members even before it starts. And with the rest of our time together this morning, I want to explain what I mean by that. Okay, so now, when I was working on today's talk, um, I, I built it around an extremely helpful principle that's found in a letter written to early Jesus followers that eventually ended up in the New Testament of the Bible. And the principle, and then I'll show you where it came from after, the principle goes like this. Even though there are many approaches to conflict, there's really only one source to conflict. Even though there are many approaches to conflict, there's really only one source of conflict. And, and this is some good news. If we can acknowledge that source and own that source, it can really help us make progress as it relates to conflict in our families. And so the principle was recorded for us first by Jesus' half-brother, a guy who history remembers as James. But fun fact for the Bible nerds among us, and you're going to love this, his name wasn't really James. Scandalous. Let me show you a slide. I know some of you are nerding out already. I'm like, what? Okay, this is the Greek word that we find in the original uh, letter we call James. And it reads this way. Iacobus. Jacob. Which, which, of course, raises a question. Then why do we call it James? Well, it was translated James into English by the people who translated the king version of the Bible to honor the guy who paid for the translation. 
sometimes it's good to be king, right? Anyway, here's how James uh, introduces us to one of the most profound relational insights ever. He begins by asking his readers a question. He says this, what causes fights and quarrels among you? And now if I were brave, I would ask you to turn to the person you came with today and ask them this question. But I'm not going to do that because I know that that would cause fights and quarrels to break out among you, right? I mean, think about this. Well, you turn to your spouse or your teenage son or your weird uncle who's visiting from Toledo, and you'd ask them what they think causes fights and quarrels among y'all, and they'd look back at you and say, oh, that's easy. You do. And you then would look back at them and think, no, 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 you do. Like you'd immediately be pointing at one another. It's natural for us to blame everyone else for the fights and the quarrels that we experience. We think we fight because, well, she's not careful with the way she spends money. Or we think that we fight with one another because, well, he's insensitive. Or we think we fight because, man, the kids just won't behave or clean up their rooms. Or, or we think we fight because parents... They just don't understand, right? I mean, Will Smith wrote a great song about this in the late 80s, and I loved that song, no surprise there. And if you're a millennial and you've never heard it, Spotify that bad boy right after church. That's your homework assignment, okay? Yeah, parents just don't understand, right? And my point is that we identify all kinds of things as the roots of our relational conflict, but none of them ever involves us. We think to ourselves, man, if everyone in my family would just do what I would tell them to do, then we would be fine. We'd have a peaceful home. And then if you're feeling really spunky, man, if everyone in the world would just do what I told them to do, we might actually finally find peace on earth, right? Because again, deep down, we don't believe that fights and quarrels have anything to do with us. They're everyone else's fault. But see, if you think about that, and I have, there's a big problem with that approach to conflict. And I'll describe it this way. As long as you blame others for your unhappiness, you'll always be unhappy. And here's why I say that. Every time you identify other people as a source of your emotional discomfort, you essentially hand your potential for happiness to that person. And now to be fair, nobody wants to yield control of our happiness to a person that we're fighting with. But if you find yourself caught in a cycle of looking at someone else and saying, if you'd only stop, if you'd only start, if you'd only quit, or if you'd only change, then, then you've unintentionally handed your potential for happiness to that person. You really have. You've essentially saying, you know, I can't be happy until they do something different. And, and again, I know nobody would do that on purpose, but I'm telling you, it's our natural default. And I think that's actually why, until we understand what James wrote, we really don't have a choice. Because if other people won't do what we think they should do, then we just can't be happy. Especially if those people are members of our family. But as you've already caught, fortunately for us, James offers us a better option. And fair warning, when you first see what he says, you're going to want to argue with him. But hold on, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll push through that in a minute. But here's what James says. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? It's like James asks his readers, you know, doesn't conflict ultimately come from something deep inside of you? And like everything in me wants to go, no, right? It's what they've done. You don't understand how toxic they are. They're the problem, James. But see, that's not what James says here. He says, okay, your desires, my desires, are ultimately the source 
of our conflict. He's like, you have a desire within you that is spilling out to the people around you. There's a conflict within you that's creating conflict with the people near you. And I'm telling you, that idea alone should cause us to rethink our current family tensions. Now check out what James says next. He writes, you desire, but do not have. So what James is arguing here is that every time you or I are in a conflict, we want something that we don't have. We have like an unmet desire. And, 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 and perhaps you're thinking something like, no, it's not just something I want. It's something I deserve. Are you kidding me? And if that's you, again, hang on, we're going to get there. But let me show you where James goes next. He says, you desire, but do not have, so you kill. And that's kind of, that's kind of extreme. We've got to remember, though, James is writing a letter to early church people not people who are on death row for murder. He's using hyperbole, but his point is extremely relevant as we think about family conflict. I mean, isn't it true that sometimes you want something so badly that you'll actually hurt the people you love in order to get it? Like some of us would say, we've seen parents functionally kill their relationships with their children because their children wouldn't do what they wanted them to do. In fact, that may be part of your story. You may have left the house at 16 or 17 years old because you couldn't stand your parents. But, but here's the thing. If we were to interview your parents today, maybe decades later, they'd probably acknowledge that behind all the agony and all the screaming and all the tears, there was a desire. They wanted you to do something that you just wouldn't do. And eventually that tension destroyed their relationship with you. It's, others of us would, would, would say, hey, I mean, I, you know, I've seen parents um, of you know, some fr- my kids' friends, they destroying their kids by placing impossibly high expectations on them that in the end had way more to do with the parents' needs than it did with their kids' potential. It's like I'm telling you, when someone wants something from someone else badly enough, they naturally lose perspective. Often they want something from the other person so that they'll feel better about themselves. I mean, they think it's about the other person, but really, in the end, it's about them. They're not getting something that they want. And James actually says as much as he continues. Here's what he says next. He says, you covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. It's like James closes the loop here. What causes fights and quarrels among you? You want something from someone else and you can't get it. Okay, so I want to suggest something before we move on in the passage. I think this is super helpful. I want you to imagine that in the coming weeks, you'll be around some family members with whom in the past you've really struggled. And I want you to imagine that before you enter a conversation with one of them, you sort of pause and you take a deep breath and you recognize that at least a part of what you're feeling, maybe just a small part, but a part of what you're feeling, the frustration or the anger or the regret, some of it is about you. You want something and you're not getting it. And I'm telling you, that moment can be such a game changer. It can be so helpful. But again, it's also unnatural, so you have to do it purposefully. But I'm telling you, if you can acknowledge that at least a part of the dysfunction is about you, it changes the conversation. I've seen it over and over and over again whenever I meet with couples who are struggling in their marriage. It's interesting, one partner or the other will reach out to me and say, hey, 
we would love to have lunch or I would love to have coffee. And generally people want coffee or lunch with me. It's because it's not because they're like, oh, we just love Keystone and just want to give you a hug. That's not how it goes. It's like, I got all these problems. Like, okay, great. But if you see me having lunch with somebody, we're just having a good time. But everyone else, you know what I mean? Okay. So when no one's going to ever have lunch with me again. I'm going to be like, oh man, I'm going to have a sign up on the website. Just kidding. So, well, like I'll get with somebody who's reached out and they've described that we're having marriage trouble. And what's interesting is when they describe the marriage problems, they often think that 100% of the problem isn't them, right? It's their partner who's in the wrong. If you think about it, you know, you could imagine it like a pie chart. Like if I had each person in a relationship that was struggling make a pie chart of blame for their relational dysfunction, each partner in the relationship would draw something like this. <laughs> Took some time with that one this week. Yeah, right? Like, neither one of them would say, you know, I, I, I don't own any slice of this blame, blame pie. And, and I know why we think that, right? I've thought about this a lot. It's like, if we actually acknowledge that we own a piece of the blame pie, well, you can say it this way. It's a little better. Let's go to that next slide. When you own a slice, you have to be nice, right? I was so excited about that this week. I was chuckling to myself in the office. Randy's uh, still visiting a missions partner, so I couldn't tell him my joke. So I'm glad you enjoyed it. But yeah, even rhymes there. Anyway, uh, this is so powerful. If you can own a slice of the blame, even the smallest slice, like if you can draw a pie chart that looks more like this, <laughs> I was like, yeah, just a little slice, right? It changes everything. And here's why I say that. As soon as you own a part of the problem, the tension you feel with the other person decreases because you're no longer simply a victim of someone else's dysfunction. You've acknowledged that you're a part of the problem, even if it's just the smallest part. And so you can't blame the other person entirely for the problems. And I am telling you that opens up incredible potential for conflict resolution. I think that's James' point. I really do. And, and so now let me show you what he says next as he continues. He says, you do not have what you want. And this is interesting because you don't, do not ask God. And then he's like, and when you ask God, in case you did ask God, you did not receive because you asked with the wrong motives. And this is so powerful. I mean, if you think about it, everything James has said up to this point it's true for people of faith and not people of faith, right? You own a slice, you have to be nice, it's about you, great. But for here, he turns a corner in his letter, and now he's leaning into people of faith. And he's basically saying to them, listen, you don't have because you haven't asked God with unselfish motives. You haven't been open and honest in your request to God. Instead of like, so he says to them, like, listen, instead of stopping mid-argument, pausing and admitting your fault, which is good, what's better is get on your knees before the confrontation even begins and acknowledge your, dare I say it, selfish desires. I mean, he, he knows already anyway. The exercise of prayer is literally about you being honest to God, but really being honest to yourself. And again, that unlocks incredible redemptive potential. You just, you get there and you say to God, listen, God, I know I'm frustrated with my husband, but I guess really, I wish he would just make more money so we wouldn't have so much financial stress in the family and we could do the things we want to do. Or, or God, I, you know, I know I'm, I'm sideways with my teenage son, but I guess, I guess in the end, I just, I, I want him, I want him to get better friends. And I want him to get better friends because I want people to think better about me because my kid is hanging out with better people. 
Or God, I just need my daughter to break up with that idiot. Right? And some of you have prayed that prayer. Come on now, right? And here's the thing. You're like saying to God, okay, no offense. I know you made him and you love him. And I don't know, maybe you made him first thing on a Monday morning or you know, looking the other way. or so, I don't know. He's an idiot. But, but I just, I want her because I can't have grandchildren that are part of that idiot. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, hey, we're just talking here. Right? Yeah. So James says, before you go and try to extract something from someone else, and that doesn't work anyway, get on your knees and honestly pour your heart out to God and confess what it is that you desire from your husband or from your kids or from your wife or from your father or from your mother. Like confess your frustration that you're not getting something that you want. And I'm telling you, it is so powerful. And, and some of you who've been walking faith for a long time already do this and you know how powerful this is like before you enter a conflict you pray and you say god i have to talk to him tonight and i'm struggling because i'm not getting what i want and, and if you've done that you know what happens like you bring the confession to god honestly with pure motives and suddenly that little piece of blame pie tiny little sliver right that's yours comes into focus and you're able to focus on you and not just them, your dysfunction, and not just theirs. And I'm telling you, when you can do that, the conversation just goes better every single time. And it makes sense, because here's how it typically goes. If you go into a conflict and you think you need something from this person, you go in with your boxing gloves up. I love the image from the series, right? You go in just like this. But you know what happens when you approach someone like this? They immediately do this in response. And I'm telling you, as soon as someone you're talking to gets defensive, the conversation is over. Like, you can keep talking, and we often do. I often do. But the conversation is over. You're not persuading anybody with anything if they get defensive. But if you can approach the conversation with humility and just say, hey, I have placed some false expectations on you. I want something for you, but I guess I've also wanted something from you, and I need to, I need to ask you to forgive me for that. That was not fair. It changes the temperature of the conversation when we pre-acknowledge to God that we are a part of the problem. And we can actually then say what we need to say in the conversation. Okay, so now before I let you go, I want to give you something to think about. And it could be a discussion question over lunch, but it may be more of an internal exercise. But it goes like this. Who in your family is suffering because you're not getting your way? Who in your family right now, who comes to mind, that they might be suffering because you're not getting your way. Uh, let me say it differently. Who in your family is feeling pressure to change or to behave or to start or to stop? Who's, who's feeling pressure because you've communicated that you'd be happier if they did what you wanted them to do? Like who's suffering because you're not getting your way? And then what might happen if you could approach them from this new perspective? I mean, for some of you, there, you're like, okay, it's, it's my kids, um, I know it's my kids, and they're grown and gone. Like, they've got kids of their own. But you're right. When we're together, some of them, they still seem like they're trying to make me happy because they're living with expectations that I placed on them before they left home. And every time they're with me, it's almost like they don't think they're measuring up. And I guess in the past I would say they weren't measuring up, but I, maybe that was about me because I wanted a different sort of... To, I wanted to be able to brag on them in a different way or something, but maybe that wasn't, that wasn't fair. 
And, and I'm telling you, in those moments, what you're doing is you're acknowledging that some of the relational dysfunction is not their issue, it's yours. It has more to do with you than with them. And if you can, if, if something comes to your heart, like maybe the next step would be wonder what, what would it look like to reach out and begin to, begin to take that unnecessary and inappropriate pressure off of them. I'm telling you, that, that might be one of the healthiest relational moves you have ever made. Just something to think about. And so just to summarize, um, James would say, do you know why you're fighting with your family? There's something that you want and you're not getting it. And do you know why they're fighting back at you? There's something they want and they're not getting it. And, and then he would say to us, I think, you know, in people pursuing relational health, like relationships as Jesus would model for us, there's this pause before a critical conversation. There's a literally a come to Jesus moment when you pray a prayer and ask God to help you recognize whatever it is that you really want from the other person. And so my prayer as I was working this up is that a whole bunch of us, as we enter the holiday season, would begin a new habit today. Like that we would begin that pause, reflect, confess thing. Because I really do think it can bring a lot of health to our most broken relationships. And it's, it's another step that we can take, a practical step. We want to learn to fight for and not just fight with our families. And so with that, I'd love to invite you to stand. And I'll close our time together in prayer. And uh, once again this week, if you've come into this place and you just desire someone to pray with you, we'd love to meet you under the screen uh, to your left right after the service. And we'd love to spend a little time and just hear a little bit of your story and offer a prayer for you. But for the rest of us, uh, let me close our time together. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us as we are, but also loving us enough to invite us to move towards health to show us the way to preserve these ancient words that somehow resonate so deeply thousands of years after they're written. I pray for the relationships that came to mind when we just put the question up on the screen. I pray that by your spirit, you would stir us in redemptive ways. You would prompt us to be honest with you in prayer and then to be honest with the people with whom we struggle. And I pray that that through that, relationships would heal. Relationships that have felt too far gone for years might literally come back from the dead. We know that that is your power at work in us, and we will give you the glory. But for today, for this time, for this community, we're just so thankful. And I pray for your grace and your peace to be on us all. In the matchless name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. And everyone said, amen. It's been good to be with you, friends. I'll see you back next week for part three of Fighting for Family.